The interviews in this podcast, all of which are ultimately uplifting stories of human transformation, may contain general discussions of depression, trauma, violence, abuse, or cultural and racial bias. On this episode of Shift Shift Bloom, I'm very grateful that God gave me a good life. Uh, and I saved money for my retirement years, but I never thought what happened to Lebanon will happen. Nobody saw it coming. I never thought Lebanon would be a country that would default and go bankrupt. Never. Cynthia Alpin knows money. She earns her living advising other people what to do with theirs. But even a 30-year career in the financial services industry in both the U.S. and her native Lebanon did not prepare her for the shocking day in 2019 when, along with six million of her countrymen, she lost it all. I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, a podcast about how people change. My guest today is Cynthia Alpin, a Lebanese-born certified financial advisor, college educated in the U.S. at the University of Memphis. Today, Cynthia is based in Beirut, where she and her daughter, and millions like them, are living through one of the worst economic crises the world has seen in over 150 years. She's here today to share her ongoing story of immense change. Welcome, Cynthia. Hello, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you. You were born in Lebanon. Correct. (laughs) When did you come to the U.S.? Was it just for college? Uh, Actually, I came to the States in 1981 because Mm -hmm. at that time we had a civil war and my mom was very worried about me. So she wanted me to go to college, to the Memphis State University. So your mom, I was going to ask if your family was supportive of you coming to the States, but it was actually your mom who encouraged you. Yes, because she was very worried that um, having the civil war around me at that time, she was worried about my uh, health and my lifestyle. So she kind of tricked me to go to the United States. She told me we're going on (laughs) vacation. And uh, okay. then she told me, you know, why don't you stay? Uh, she registered me at the university. She registered me in the dorms. And then she told me, this is going to be your room temporarily. We're going to Texas and I will come pick you up after one month and we go back to Lebanon. And uh, she called me and she said, guess what? I'm in Lebanon and you're staying there. Oh. <laughs> I said, why, mommy? I want to come back. Uh, at the time, uh, I was a spoiled brat. Uh, I was living in a, you know, fun life even though there was a war but we didn't have an economical crisis we just had to worry about bombs and guns and stuff like that uh and she was worried about me because i was 17 and i wanted to go out partying during the bombs Mm. so she made sure that i moved to the united states her home country how long did it take you to adjust and feel like okay i'm i'm okay here okay uh to tell you just even though i was 17 and partying and going to school during the bombs, but bombs used to scare me uh, Like everybody so I will never forget that day the first week 
or the second week walking to my class between classes and the postman dropped uh, his mailbox a very heavy mailbox from the van from the post office van uh, I'm sorry my English is not good anymore um, and I I jumped and ducked under the car and everybody around me in in this mm. university they thought what what's going on and that boom uh, made yes. me uh, you know hide and everybody started laughing I got adjusted to the United States uh, after uh, one year it took me six months to one year mm. Mm. I was homesick I'll bet that's a big move what did you study at the University of Memphis I changed a lot of majors uh, at first I wanted to be uh, a journalist and the teacher said you have a very heavy accent you will never uh, be able to do it so then I moved from uh, being a journalist to international studies and your first job was in finance uh, as a college student I was doing the odd jobs that all the American uh, kids do which I loved very much and they built character and yes. my first job was a bank teller uh, at American mm. uh, Bank. And then I went as a stockbroker, yes, with a major brokerage firm in the United States. And did you like that? Did you feel drawn to learning about finance and, and banking institutions? I loved it. Uh, I was, mm. uh, I, at first, I wasn't planning to become a stockbroker, but I took it as a part-time job. It was at the time with E.F. Hutton, and uh, the and I just took it to be a cold caller for a stockbroker, and I ended up uh, opening a lot of accounts. And the manager at the time felt I'm talented, and he told me you should take this as your career. And that's when I started studying for my Series Seven and Sixty Three and NASD. And he used to tell me just memorize the scripts. <laughs> If the client says this, say that, you know, it was okay. great. And I had a great, great life. I, I mean, I had the American, American dream. I, I used that phrase when I was talking about you the other day, that that's what it sounded like to me, that you were living the American dream. How, how long did you stay in the States working? Until 1999. Wow. Mm. So you were, in, you were in the States 18 years. I loved it, yes. All told. What, what are you dreaming of in your life as you're, you're out in the world as a working woman, you're making your own money, you're in a field that's still at that point is probably dominated by men, primarily men. What are your life dreams at that point? I, when I was working in the United States of America, I never felt uh, different from any men I was working with at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I'm a little bit surprised about the things I read about or hear about uh, on the mm -hmm. international news or USA News now. I was uh, four or five female stockbrokers at the time among 80 men, and we I was treated equal to everybody, or at least I made sure I was treated to everybody. And I enjoyed life. The, the companies I worked with, they invested in me, um uh, they they taught me everything i know right now and i'm very grateful you're a certified financial advisor among your other your series 7 license that you have among all your other licenses you're you're certified to give advice about finances to other people i'm curious do you have <laughs> 
do you have your, your giggling? Do you have a philosophy um, about money? Yes. Uh, it's, it's the basic philosophy that you tell everybody, you know, uh, uh, the financial planning pyramid or the circle that, you know, uh, your salary, 50% should go to expenses, 30% luxury and 20% savings. And thank God this is what I did. Actually, this is what is saving me right now from the 20% saving. Uh, but unfortunately, when I moved back to Lebanon, I moved uh, my savings into Lebanese banks because I was living here. Even though I knew something is wrong and I was telling my clients, don't do that, don't do that. And I did. When you talk to people about money, mm. I go to a financial advisor. I see him once a year. I find it very emotional and very, and very therapeutic mm. to talk to him. What, what is it about money that's so deep for us as humans? Uh, money is important. It gives us financial freedom, peace of mind. Uh, knowing that you can pay your rent, you can go to the supermarket and eat. Uh, you know, it, it gives you a peace of mind. I'm, I'm not talking, uh, when I was in my 20s and 30s, of course, I wanted to have the luxury items. I wanted to, to do things that I never had before. Um, also, when I was a stockbroker, it was easy money. Mm. I worked hard. I really worked very, very hard. But also it was easy. You work hard, you make money. That's it. Mm. And that's what's beautiful about the United States of America. Uh, mm. uh, really, it's an amazing country. People, uh, if you work hard and you are honest, uh, people will invest in you and trust you. At least with me. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder if everyone would agree with that, but I'm glad that you had that experience. I had a positive experience with my employers in the United States and with my clients and my friends. <laughs> so what brought you back to Lebanon? I fell in love with a Lebanese mm. man, uh, a man. Uh, that I met uh, during my summer vacation in Lebanon. And plus another major reason is my parents, now who, are, who have passed away, got older and I wanted okay. to spend time with them. Uh, my father was getting older, my aunt was getting older. And I always, when I was in the States, I was always thinking that what will happen if I go back to Lebanon? You know, I wanted always to come back to Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, you know, if things don't work out, I'll go back to, to the States. So I came back to Lebanon and uh, it was a good life as well at the time. Were you looking ahead at that point in your life? Like you weren't really even middle-aged then, were you? But were you thinking about your retirement years long-term planning, having a family, what, what, what were you thinking about in terms of things you need to plan financially for at that moment after the move back to Lebanon? When I went back to Lebanon, I, kept, I moved from being a stockbroker into a financial planning advisor working with insurance companies. So it was mm. mainly uh, working harder for less money. Okay. Uh, but I enjoyed it because uh, the stock market in uh, Lebanon uh, opens at 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon because of oh. the time frame. So I didn't want to be working at night and sleeping in the morning. I wanted to socialize. I was single for a very long time. And I always enjoyed, uh, I was not the type to get married early and have children. 
I all uh, I was the type enjoying life, you know, going out, uh, you know, work hard, party hard, you know, have fun, travel, yes. discover the world, and so on. I'm very grateful that God gave me a good life, uh, and I saved money for my retirement years. But I never thought what happened to Lebanon will happen. Nobody saw it coming. I mean, the, the first thing you, they teach you at school is any company or any government giving you a very high interest rate is a high-risk investment. This is the first thing I learned at school. This is the first thing I advise clients when they tell me we want to invest in Brazil, when we want to invest in Argentina, or they want to invest in a high, uh, high interest rate bond. And I tell them this is high risk. It should be only 10 or 15% of your portfolio and not more. And guess what? I never thought Lebanon, even though giving high interest rate, would be a country that would default and go bankrupt. Never. I was going to ask you that very thing, which is because you're in the industry and you understand concepts and patterns and trends probably better than the average person, did you have any intuition or sense that something wasn't right? I knew it. I knew it. And I even told people, but... Uh... I didn't follow my advice. I didn't follow my instinct because I couldn't believe it. I was uh, in denial that it will happen to us. I thought it will, it will recover somehow. What are the primary factors that you're noticing that you're in denial about, but you are noticing? You mentioned high interest rates. That's it, high interest rate. Very high interest rate. I mean, even in 1999, when I was working in the States and my job at that time was with a very big bank in the USA, the banks and the insurance companies in the Middle East were our clients and they hired me because I speak Arabic. That was my asset in the United States because I speak mm -hmm. Arabic and I speak English and they taught me to do, they taught me presentation skills, you know, uh, communication skills and so on. So my job was to go and tell the banks in Lebanon, don't put all your money in Lebanon, put some of it in the USA. And all the banks told me, no, no, the interest. And I was telling them, this is high risk, move the money from the banks, part of it, 10% part of it, and put it out. And even the Central Bank of Lebanon used to allow banks to move out 10 to 20% offshore, where everything else has to stay in Lebanon. Insurance companies also. So a lot of the major international companies that saw this coming stopped, like banks, insurance companies, and investment companies, they pulled out of Lebanon three or four years ago, before the crisis. International insurance companies started pulling out of Lebanon because there was a law, the Ministry of Economy, 50% of the premium had to stay in Lebanon and 50% was allowed to go offshore. So Zurich Financial Services, HSBC, and all these international banks knew what's happening, so they went out of Lebanon. They just said, okay, we're leaving. But as a Lebanese who got married nine years ago, I start having ties. You know, my husband is Lebanese. My daughter is going, she's Lebanese. She's going to a very well-known school in Lebanon. 
So I couldn't anymore pull out and go back to the States. I had uh, attachments that kept me in Lebanon and my father only passed away uh, one year ago. So I had to also stay with him because he was too old. We, I was in the generation taking sandwiched generation yes. where you're taking care of the elderly and taking care of the uh, young. So you you, yes. you cannot just let go and say, bye, you know, I'm moving like when you're 20 or 30. So despite your intuition, you keep all of your money in the Lebanese banks? Well, let me tell you, let me be frank with you. Uh, yes. uh, I bought a house with some of the money I had. And I invested in um, in in, in uh, some uh, retirement plans in Lebanon, and I also invested in. Um, I kept money in Lebanon, and I didn't send it. I didn't have enough. I, I mean, I didn't think of sending it offshore. I didn't think it's going to be that major, the problem. So, from what I read, they said it's August 2019, when everybody really realizes it is that bad. It's, it's terrible. What, do you remember the first day or the first moment when you realize this is very, very bad? What happened when the revolution in Lebanon started and the banking crisis started, I was with my daughter in Istanbul shopping. And then we start seeing something on the news. It's like, there's a revolution. Uh, banks are closing. All of a sudden, they're blocking their doors. And we came back to Lebanon. My credit card stopped. And they said, you're only allowed at the beginning to withdraw $1,000 per month. What's going on? You know, so we start withdrawing $1,000 per month. And then now we reached a level. They're saying you can only uh, withdraw Lebanese money and only like, uh, like, let me tell you how much now it is. Five million liras, which is nothing. It's almost like 200 or $100 per month. But we don't have electricity, so we have to buy um, like gas, uh, mazout, I don't know how to say it anymore, diesel. And mm. the diesel costs us $200 per month. My, my salary is worthless. I have a certain salary that is equivalent to nothing now in Lebanon. So it is literally overnight. It happened uh, six months gradually, but they put restrictions for us to withdraw money from the banks. It was like, it went from 2000 to 1000 to $200 per month. But by the time they're restricting your withdrawals, mm. it's too late to do anything. It was too late for me. The politicians, they all took their money out. People with contacts, they took their money out. Uh, for example, my cousin, all my, I, I live right now, I'm roommates with my cousin. I mean, I bought a house with my cousin. She is uh, 78 years old. She has uh, savings, like a big amount of savings in the bank. They don't, I mean, what can she do now? They, they don't, they're not allowing her to move anything out of the money, uh, bank. They're only allowing her $100. And she is retired. I mean, how is she supposed to live? I'm still working. I'm still managing somehow. So as of today, the maximum withdrawal per month for an average citizen is 100 Let me tell you, I, I'm, I'm going to get my calculator out. Yes. 
sorry, I didn't do my calculations. <laughs> so it's 5 million liras divided, and now the dollar is 29,000. $172. We're only allowed to take out of the bank per month. What does that $172 buy you? Nothing. 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 Stop and think for a minute about how far you could get on $172 a month. So it makes sense that the World Bank itself has labeled Lebanon an FCV, a fragility, conflict, and violence state. But I wondered, how did it get there? I'll bullet point it for you. Bullet point number one, Lebanon pegged its currency, the lira, to the U.S. dollar rather than allowing global financial markets to set its value. That stabilized things for a while, sure. However, in 2011, this is bullet point two, between the civil war in Syria and political instability and the growing power of Hezbollah in Lebanon itself, foreign investors basically dumped Lebanese assets lock, stock, and barrel. Bullet point number three. Let's fast forward to 2016, when, by the way, the country of Lebanon had no president for almost the entire year. The Central Bank of Lebanon introduced something called financial engineering, those crazy high interest rates that Cynthia was talking about before. Financial engineering is basically the bank offering lavish returns for new dollars. What are new dollars? Money borrowed to pay existing creditors. Let, let me explain it this way. This month's investors pay off last month's investors, and the bank is just sitting around hoping that next month's investors will pay off this month's investors. It's a Ponzi scheme. But unlike the mostly wealthy people who were victimized by Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme, this is the entire country of Lebanon, over 6 million people who've lost everything. Inflation went crazy, and the value of the lira has plummeted by more than 90% since 2019. For every $100 you had in savings, you now have about a buck. Cynthia's description of how her countrymen are responding to this is sobering. I mean, a lot of people are committing suicide now in Lebanon, or they're starving, or they're depending on donations. Or there are people uh, helping them, uh, families uh, from overseas. So a lot of families, like the wife and the children stay in Lebanon, and the husbands are going to Saudi Arabia, to Dubai, to work. And unfortunately, back before the crisis, the Lebanese... Uh, person, when he used to travel to the Middle East, he was an asset, and they, they used to give us good salaries, like $5,000, $10,000, $7,000, I mean, for an engineer, for a doctor, for a private banker. Now that the Middle East know our crisis, they're giving them only $1,000 or $2,000. They're taking advantage of us. I read that 75% of the population of Lebanon right now is living under the poverty line. Yes, we are living under the poverty line. I am blessed that I'm working. I'm blessed. Uh, I'm, we are managing. Uh, we have now uh, we have uh, a cousin of ours, Samir Jarallah, the cousin of my cousin Nahida. He's sending us money from overseas. If it wasn't for him, I don't know what we'd do. I wouldn't know what to do if this human being is not helping us out.
I would have to move. I would have to go back to the United States, leave my daughter with my ex-husband and leave uh, the elderly alone. And I would have to be like everybody else and leave. And really, it's hard because I'm divorced, you know. If I was married, maybe my I would tell my husband, okay, let's go with my daughter and be a unit outside of Lebanon. But there's also a law in Lebanon. Uh, I'm married to a Muslim. And the law for Muslims, the children stay with the husband. We don't have, the woman doesn't have any rights. He, they keep an eye on me, how I'm behaving. And they keep an eye on how I bring her up. And I, can, I cannot even get married. Because in Islam, uh, if I get married, my daughter is not allowed to be with a non-blood relative in the house. Wow. She will go to to her father. Her father is an amazing man. He's a very good man. I'm not uh, saying anything about him. He will do a very good job bringing her up. But, you know, I got my daughter at an el elderly age, and I want to be a mom. Yeah. How were you raised? What was your religious upbringing? My religious? Oh, very complicated. I have a very complicated <laughs> life. <laughs> a mixture. My father is Muslim, Sunni. My mother is, uh, her, her mom is Maronite, Christian, and her father is Catholic. So my mom is Christian, and my father is Muslim. And I was brought up in a house that is uh, both religions, we respect all religions, and we respect all uh, political parties, and we respect all human beings as equal. So we, I, I was brought up in a very liberal house. With that variety of, of uh, viewpoints and that respect that you just talked about and the gratitude with which you talk about everything, I, there is a lot of finger pointing about why this has happened, why, why the country is in crisis economically. It's because the Lebanese government is too tied into the religious parties. It's because of corruption in the central bank. It's because U.S. and other foreign donors have propped up corrupt politicians and the elite for their own influence. What do you see? Are all those things true or is there another truth that isn't being discussed? 100% true. Unfortunately, uh, the politicians and the religious parties are all intertwined. They're all together as one. So uh, the, even if the people go down for to do a revolution, the army is with the politicians who are also shareholders of banks. So there's no way we don't I don't see any way out of this problem, to be honest with you. No. It is all mafias. We have 15 mafias in Lebanon. That's tribal community a tribal community. We don't have any democracy in Lebanon. Is that something you've always known or felt, or is that something that's revealed itself to you as you watch this collapse? It was always around since I was a little child growing up. Remember, I told you the reason I went to the States in uh, 1981, there, there was a political uh, civil war. So all our life in Lebanon, we were broken up. We, it is a tribal community and it's... Uh, religion after, uh, versus another religion, a political party against another political party, and all the head of political parties are taking money from foreign governments, different foreign governments, that they have their own war in Lebanon. 
Lebanon is a strategic location for many international countries. I don't want to mention them. And they are all having their war in Lebanon using the political leaders that they are giving them a lot of money and allowing them to do whatever they want with the people. Do you feel hopeless? We are hopeless. We are hopeless. There's nothing. There's nothing we can do. Because when the people go down to the streets, the army, who is not making any money from his salaries, from uh, the government, they're shooting at us. Because they have another source of income from political leaders who are the owners of banks. Talk me through your day-to-day life as it's impacted by this extreme limitation of the $172 that you can withdraw per month. And I know you mentioned you have a salary, but I know, explain to our listeners how that really works. What, what, what do you see of that salary? What can you access of that salary? What is that salary's value at this point? Uh, my salary was equivalent to $5,000. A month. Before, that was the basic, and I had commission plus bonuses. And $5,000 was a lot, a lot, a lot of money in Lebanon. Uh, Now, my $5,000 is equivalent to $200. And I'm not, I don't get it as dollars. I got it, I get it as Lebanese liras. When we go to the bank to get my salary, my salary, the owner of my company, where I work for, he is a very good man. But what can he also do? Because his money... And the company money is also stuck in the bank. It's not like he doesn't want to give me cash. He cannot give me cash. So now what we're doing is we go to the bank and they give us like a debit card. They say, this is the liquid cash you have. And whatever you want, if you want to go to the supermarket, you need to use the debit card. So for example, I want to buy uh, coffee. I want to buy Nescafe coffee that everybody takes for granted you go to the supermarket you just put it and you get out in the supermarket it's much more expensive for example for example it might cost me 25 dollars and i'm just giving a sample i might find it somewhere else for eight dollars but somewhere else they don't have a debit card so i cannot buy it i have to go buy it Mm. from the supermarket because they will accept my debit card So we are all in Lebanon living via checks or debit cards. Is it clear? Does it make sense to you how we're living? So the cash money, the liquid money, we pay for diesel and we pay for things that we need cash to do. And everything else is we're playing with monopoly money. But also with that, we have a ceiling. So we have learned the Lebanese people to survive. This is the funny thing that human beings the first three months, four months, we went crazy, uh, we went uh, whatever. Now we have adapted. I- imagine we are adapting to this lifestyle. But a lot of people who don't have debit cards are dying. They're dying of starvation. They're committing suicide. They're robbing. A lot of people now are robbing because people need to eat. So they have to rob. It's normal. I mean, if you have a man who has to feed his children and he doesn't have an income and he doesn't have access to his money, What? how is he going to eat? So it's like the cowboy days. Mm. 
You say you've adapted or some people have been able to adapt. What does that mean for you? Does that mean you eat less? You socialize less? You use less toilet paper in the bathroom? How, how has this changed your, yes. your habits and your consumption? For example, before we used to go out and uh, party, eat sushi, eat steak, uh, whatever, you know. I used to travel three, four times a year, enjoy life. I mean, I worked hard. So now, for example, traveling is out of the question. Buying clothes, we don't buy anything. We're just living on basics. Uh, before, we used to be able to take long showers. Now we have to take quick showers because you have to buy water. Imagine, you have to think before taking a shower. Is there water enough? Not enough water? You open the faucet, there's no water because we, we didn't buy enough water. Before, we used to have electricity all the time. Now, uh, we just have rationing electricity. For example, uh, from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m., no electricity. In the morning, three hours, no electricity. Some houses, uh, they only have one or two hours or three hours maximum electricity. This is a problem in the summer because the food will uh, get destroyed. Uh, gas. Imagine there were days there were no gas for the car. We walk everywhere. I don't want to tell you how my legs, uh, I, I had tendinitis because I'm walking everywhere. I'm walking from the house to the school of my daughter. I'm, we're walking. For the first time in our entire conversation, Cynthia takes a pause. And I can see how listing these little everyday losses all at once has really triggered something in her. So I ask her what's going on. But really now it's like, it's very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard what we're going through. For example, I cannot eat meat anymore. I used to, I mean, I, I, would, I cannot buy meat. And I used to throw parties and eat meat. I cannot buy clothes anymore. Everything I have, I buy for my daughter. Mm. All my life, I save money. It's not fair for the government to do for anyone what we are going. And nobody is helping. No government in the world is helping us. Has this change, this external change, this change of flow, has it changed anything internally in you? You know, when people are in trouble in life, they always go back to the, to, they go back to God or they go back to prayers. And we are all the Lebanese people, we're thinking, why is this happening to us? Is there a lesson to learn from it? I'm sad. We are sad. Are you scared as well? I mean, you mentioned the level and the, the depth of the poverty and looting and robbing and I imagine fighting that's still going on. Is it just something you're used to or is it scarier now to go out on the streets and live life? Uh, well, I, Kristen, <laughs> I'm a very strong person. And I yes. took self-defense classes in the United States of America. 
and they taught us how to walk in a, a assertive way. So I think people are scared at, so far to this moment. They're scared to approach me because I'm like a tiger. But other women in Lebanon, they are scared. Other people, yes, they are scared. They're panicking. But I always use my positive mindset and my strength. Uh, when I'm walking, the way I stare at people, the way I look at people, they are scared of me. They move, mm. you know. But mm. uh, that's me. But other people, other people, yes, they are scared to go out. They're not going out at night. They worry about their children. They worry. About, the, the women are scared. Yes, they are scared. Even the men, some of the men are scared. You have a daughter, Aya. Mm. How old is she? She's nine years old. And I'm a helicopter mom. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're confessing I, uh, uh, here now. I'm like, I have, uh, I'm always uh, surrounding her. Whenever she's moving out of the house, I have protection around her. Nobody can touch her. How have you seen her cope with this change do you talk to her about things openly does she have her ups and downs about what's happening children are resilient i never felt there's a concern you know do we have water now to take shower we take shower we don't have water now no water no electricity some the good thing about not having electricity is that she's not playing on the ipad we're talking more so there's always yes. a positive and negative for everything but it yes. hit me strongly when I told you my cousin Samir uh, invited us to Dubai and it was something unexpected came out uh, of nowhere. He said, come you, Nahida, my cousin Nahida and Aya, please come to Dubai and, and rest for one week and come back to Lebanon. And before she took her shower over there, she stopped. She said, mom, can I have a bubble bath? How long can I take a shower? Oh my God, you know, I didn't realize how it, it, she was missing her bubble bath because now the showers we take, we take them quickly. Uh, we jump in because we're paying a lot of money to have water to take shower with it and a lot of money to heat the, the water also. And the man looked at her, he said, my cousin Samir, he said, yes, Habibti, you, you can take a long shower, do a bubble bath. And my mother, we're like, yay! bubble bath bubble bath bubble bath so yes they are affected but we are not aware that they are yes they're affected and yes they do adjust and yes we are getting a really clear understanding of the financial crisis that's going on in lebanon but it's not just the financial crisis there are three other factors that are taking a bad situation and making it worse. The first one is the large and often violent protests that are taking place regularly throughout the country, prompted, ironically, by the government's imposing attacks on WhatsApp calls, which many Lebanese families use because phone calls are so expensive. Second, there's the pandemic, which kicked Lebanon's economy when it was already down because nobody's visiting and tourism makes up 20% of the Lebanese economy. Third, in August 2020, there was a huge explosion at the port in Beirut, Lebanon's capital, which killed over 200 people and destroyed entire neighborhoods. If you can believe it, Cynthia and her daughter were right in the middle of it. And we're close by. Imagine, I was at work and she was alone at home with a nanny. 
all the glass shattered on her all the glass i mean she was sitting on the sofa and for some reason she went up to the kitchen to go to the kitchen to drink water and in exactly where she was sitting on the sofa the window fell on the sofa hadn't she not gone to the kitchen to drink water she would have been dead now and she was calling me and i didn't realize that the bomb was so close to to the home i thought because it was so loud i thought it was next to my office i was taking care of the employees then i went and i saw all the glass on the sofa where she's sitting i hugged her you know i said oh my god you know i couldn't believe you're still alive this this bomb destroyed us would you leave if you could i'm blessed that i have a turkish passport from my father and an american passport from my mom but i you need money to buy an airline ticket then when you go to a new country you need money to rent a house and you need money until you find a job if you if i want to do that in a normal situation i would have money in my saving account i would take it out and say yeah let's go back to the states and i'll use my savings for one year until i adapt but none of the lebanese can do that and we will never put money in the bank nobody's gonna put money in the bank in lebanon everybody is keeping their money in houses now real estate no in the house money in under, the house under so if the, the house under the mattress went back to the old fashioned way has your philosophy changed now like as you advise people do you say put your money under the mattress i think about that all the time you need to put now in lebanon six times or one year of your monthly expenses under the mattress mm -hmm. and any other money you have to send it offshore outside of lebanon and the big problem is that uh, if you have a house fire, your money is going to get burnt. And that's why a lot of uh, thieves are robbing houses because they know we're, we're stashing money in the houses. You're obviously very strong and very resilient. I also, not always. Not always. Not always. Sometimes I cry. <laughs> but remember, I just came back from vacation. I mean, I just sat there at the sand, absorbed the sun, looked at the blue beach. That was, that was a blessing. That was a gift, a beautiful gift. Did it restore some hope for you or some peace of mind? Going the donated vacation I had gave me uh, energy to come back and fight. But also at the same time, I was wondering, am I doing the right thing to come back to Lebanon? Should I pull my family out? I have the option. I have the education. I have the nationalities to travel. But a lot of people in Lebanon don't have what I have. A lot of people in Lebanon, they're helpless. They're, that's why they wait for politicians to give them the money. They cannot do a revolution because they cannot cut off the hand that is feeding them. I'm holding for the church bells on my end. Mm, it's beautiful. They are so beautiful, so beautiful. We have in Lebanon churches and mosques next to each other. So you hear the church bell and then you hear the azan of the, of the mosque. I did bring up your strength because I also know a little bit about your ancestral history of loss. Can you tell us about, is it your grandmother or your great-grandmother? Oh, the Ottoman part of me, 
my father, his mother is Fatma Sultan, the great granddaughter of Sultan Abdul Majid. His father is the son of Qasim Basha. He is the, the biggest general in the Turkish army and he built the Hijaz Railway. So yes, the Ottoman family is uh, it's in my DNA. <laughs> and what happened to your grandmother? What, how, how did the family end up in Lebanon? My aunt, Bilun Alpan Osmanolu, and my grandmother, Fatma Sultan, uh, when Atatürk came into power uh, in Turkey, they threw them out and they had to leave on the boat and go to Nice. And in Nice, all the princesses, the sultanas, uh, they were married off to different Muslim kings in, of the world. One princess to India, she was married off to India's king's son, the other one to Egypt, the other one to Jordan. And my, my poor aunt, Bilun, Sultana Hanem, she was married off to Jerusalem, the son, the son of the judge there. And of course, you know what happened uh, in Palestine. So they were, they, she was also evicted from Palestine and she came to Lebanon. So she was uh, evicted three times from three different countries. She was unlucky. And there's a movie about her, actually. You'll find it on YouTube. So she came to Lebanon. And when the civil war started, she said, I'm tired. You know, I don't want to move any more countries. I want to die here. So she rebuilt her life three times. Do you think there is something in your DNA that... <laughs> uh, my DNA, definitely, I'm a, I tend to be a little bit bossy, <laughs> a leader, a survivor, and uh, also I take care of people. I, I love taking care of people. I protect, I'm a, I'm a protector as well. So the Ottomans were leaders and also were protectors. And fighters. You know how long it takes to have a nest egg, to put money in the bank, to plan for things, to make changes in a practical way on a personal level. What do you see for your country right now? People have to be in it for the long haul. What, what, what's the long haul? What's it going to take? How long is it going to take? It's going to take 10 years. 10 to 15 years to come back to where we are. We have garbage everywhere. People are throwing garbage on the streets. Uh, we need to educate the people with the basics, re-educate the people with the basics, re-educate, and not make quick money. Re-educate, re-educate that uh, to work for their money, uh, re-educate not to steal, re-educate not to get bribed, re-educate uh, to make the good service again. Do you see examples of that, successful examples of that? Because this feels like a top-down problem, as they say, you know, the, the poison is trickling from the top. Right. How do you combat that? I'm not a politician. I'm not a politician. I'm a businesswoman. Yeah. And I, I see things, we need to change the top and rebuild from the bottom with small pieces. A lot of people make fun of me that I'm looking at the small details. I tell them, let's start with the small details and then develop the big things. Part of my job at uh, work is to recruit, train, motivate, and retain agents, 
financial advisors. So a lot of financial advisors came to me. They didn't know anything. They didn't know. They didn't even know they could uh, work. And I trained them. And I believe in training and educating the people again. And most important, we need to educate uh, the clergy, the priest and the sheikh and the key people of areas. You know, we need to take to in key people who influence their neighborhood. We need to find the key person of each neighborhood and re-educate them. Number one, we need to educate about waste management. As simple as that. Waste, they, they, they throw, and now they're opening the windows of cars and they throw the their garbage God, I mean you cannot walk on the street it smells so bad there's garbage everywhere okay we don't have money but why throw garbage everywhere wow it's a huge task yes but we can do it if we have the right people we can do it I believe in education just like in the United States when you were cowboys what did you do you put laws right you need to put laws First, start with laws and don't break the laws. We don't want wasta. Here, if you have a car accident, for example, it's so funny. They go down and instead of calling the expert to see whose fault it is, each one will call his political party and then they will come with guns and shoot each other. It really is the Wild West. Yes, it is. And, and the funny thing, each human being in Lebanon is backed up by someone powerful. And that powerful is the person who's, who stole the money from the banks. And each human being in Lebanon belongs to a certain political party. And that political party is backed by a country outside of Lebanon, fighting with another country who is supporting that other political party. So we're having a war in Lebanon of different international companies via political parties. These political parties they influence religious clerks, and these uh, religious clerks influence the citizens. Do you align with any of them? I mean, do is there any party no. or parties? No, that... no, no. I'm a neutral human being. My mother is Christian. My father is Muslim. No. Tell me about the younger generation. I'm shocked. I'm truly shocked because I didn't think I didn't think any of these younger generation will be affiliated with political parties. And now, when we were down uh, at the street a year ago, fighting for a revolution, fighting that uh, we want uh, to throw the government out, fighting for uh, to get money back, and fighting for our basic rights, who showed up to shoot at us and make problems is the young generation that are affiliated with political parties. So it's going from grandfather to son to, to children. So it's ongoing. What do you teach your daughter about being a citizen of the world? She's young now, but in 10 years, she'll be a young woman. Mm -hmm. I am blessed that the school she belongs to, International College, they teach them to be a, a child of the world and no political uh, discussions are allowed or political parties are allowed or guns are allowed or drivers or bodyguards are allowed. They are all equal at school. You said that there are positives and negatives to all situations. What has been a positive for you in this situation or what do you see as a positive for humanity? 
for the people who are not working for NGOs and making fresh money or dollar money from outside, we are now all equal in poverty. We used to have uh, different classes. There was an upper, the rich class, the upper middle class, middle class, low class. You know, we used to have a class society. Now all of us stand in line to get gas. We all stand in line to get bread. We all get our electricity is cut off. So now we're almost, we are equal. And I hope this will teach us a lesson to respect each other. Lebanon has so much, so much to give to the world. We shouldn't be on the opposite side. We shouldn't be taking. We should be the ones who are giving. We are all educated. We are resilient. The Lebanese speak English, Arabic, and French. Hardworking. Uh, there are smart. How can a smart society end up like that? I don't understand. Makes me angry. Do you think you will stay when your daughter is an adult? No. Where will you go? USA. Definitely USA. The best country in the world. Of course, I can go to Turkey and be a royal, <laughs> a princess. Option B, Turkish princess. But I like the freedom I had in the United States. I, I like the retirement homes as well. <laughs> it's, they're fun. But unfortunately, in the Middle East, uh, elderly are not treated also very well. In the United States, elderly can go out, have fun. They even date, you, you know, they live their life. But when I was living in Falls Church, Virginia, I used to see them dancing, the elderly, um, doing fun stuff together. I, I remember when I was a teller, there was a retirement bus used to come up and they used to withdraw their money and go have fun. Right now in this moment, what do you miss? If you could get one thing back that's been taken away through this crisis, what would it be? I miss not worrying about going to the supermarket. I mean, I miss uh, stupid stuff that I miss. I miss my facial cream, <laughs> my body cream. I, I, I miss uh, some of the food we still buy eating a nice steak. There's a lot of things we cannot buy anymore. We're just buying the basics, but we are saying Alhamdulillah. We say, thank God we have them. Some people don't even have them. I miss going out with my friends. Now we, we do still meet, but we meet in the houses. Before, we, before the drama, we used to have cheese and wine. Now we say, let's have uh, muajanat and wine. Uh, muajanat is pastries. Uh, that you do make from bread and flour, you know. Cheese is out of cheese is so expensive now. You cannot buy cheese like before. You said you're angry. That makes, of course, you're angry. Are there other primary emotions that visit you very regularly throughout this experience? Um, that's it. I'm just very angry, sad. 
I'm blessed yet on the other hand that uh, we're managing better than others. I feel sad that I cannot help the poor because before I, uh, part, uh, part of Islam and part of Christianity is to help others and I'm not able to do that. I mean, I worked so hard all my life. I'm 58. I shouldn't be starting life over again, but I am, but it's okay. Maybe there's a reason for us to do that. But it's happened even in the United States in 2008. A lot of people, the retirement uh, plans crashed, but they were also invested in aggressive funds, not conservative. So it's lessons. We learn lessons. Life is all about ups and downs and lessons. And what's important to be resilient and stand up again. And during hard times, you know who are your true friends. This is showing up now. And uh, God always has a way to help us out. We started with the fact that you're a, a financial planner. Mm. Has this shifted your life plan? Do you see, foresee that you will have to work much longer than you thought you'd have to? What, what changes has this brought about in your, in your own planning for your own life? Correct, exactly. So my retirement age uh, is gonna be prolonged to work or either I have to work harder and I need to start uh, thinking of maybe not moving to a foreign country but starting selling uh, uh, or providing financial services for Lebanese living overseas mm. who are making dollars mm. so I need to find clients who are making dollars and start working with them or at least work with a company or maybe even work online with the United States uh, giving training and so on. I would like to be able to work overseas and yet also I would like to give back to my uh, country and educate people, uh, empower women in Lebanon to stand on their feet and not uh, depend on handouts or men for a living. Cynthia, I hope that someone out there who's listening hears that and connects with you and helps you make that happen. I am so full of admiration for your perspective and your desire to use education to change people's minds and thinking and practices. I think one of the great things about this podcast that I've learned across the board with every interview is if we can sit and hold space for somebody else's experience and then ask how we can help, and then actually take a step towards helping. That's really a high level way to live. I wanna ask you some rapid fire questions if that's okay. So just the first thing that comes to your mind, don't, don't think. The first one is a fill in the blank. Change requires blank. Education. If you could go back in time and change one thing and only one thing about your past, what would it be? To invest more offshore. What is one thing, big or small, that you would like to see change in the world? To accept each other's differences. What is one thing, big or small, that you hope never changes? People like you willing to help others. What is one small or superficial thing about yourself that you would like to change? superficial <laughs> I would like to have my 
uh, I, you know, I'm at the age uh, I would like to enhance my uh, my looks. <laughs> You're not the. And I used to do that when I had money. Now that I don't have money, that, so this is the joke in Lebanon now that we cannot afford Botox anymore or uh, or uh, fix our teeth. You know, I my plan was to fix my teeth. I was saving money to fix my teeth. Here's another silly question. How often do you change your toothbrush? Back, back then, before this crisis was three months. Now I haven't changed that for maybe one year, one year and a half. I know that we all have aspects of each of these, but do you consider mm -hmm. yourself primarily a change maker, a change seeker, or a change resistor? Both maker and seeker. I like to seek knowledge and give it, pass it on to the people around me. Beautiful. What does your next change look like? And you can feel free to be aspirational or imaginative or fantastical about that. I, uh, what I would like to have is I would like to learn how to use Zoom, the internet. <laughs> Sure, you know, I, I would like someone to teach me uh, how to to be able to work on the internet more. Done. This is... Uh, <laughs> uh, I can do that. Now, how to share folder, you know, how to share folder, how to, to do, you know, to become a blogger, you know, something like that. Mm. With all the changes that you've gone through in your life, what is something that has not changed about you? My inner self has not changed. So this is something, the inner soul, my inner soul has not changed. No matter where you put me, up or down, I have not changed. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your concern about Lebanon. And thank you so much for everything. And thank you for listening. Just talking makes a person happy. I agree. It's been my pleasure. I hope I get to see you again soon. Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org and by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky, online at iph.uky.edu.